0: Hey, Curious Clinicians, this is Tony Brew. This week, we're posting an episode from Adam Rodman's amazing podcast, Bedside Rounds. Adam and I recorded this uh, session just a few months back for the Massachusetts ACP annual conference. We discussed the history of the death exam and contemporary ethical issues in the determination of circulatory death. We really hope you enjoy the episode and we'll be back in just two short weeks with a new episode of our own.
1: Thank you so much for having us, Dr. Choi.
0: It's um, absolutely a pleasure to be back, and um, you can see already we have a poll that we, we want the audience to engage with as we begin this afternoon session. There's three questions that you hopefully should see. If you only see one, that's totally fine. Um, and what we'll do is we'll have you engage with these questions, uh, we'll look at the answers, and then at the end of today's discussion, we'll sort of think about the responses that we've received. So. This talk was born out of an invitation that Adam and I got um, to write a few papers about the history and the ethics of the determination of circulatory death. And we wanted to begin with a a question, and that question seems quite obvious at first, but as you'll see over the next 30 minutes, uh, it really isn't obvious at all. And it's, how do we as internists tell that somebody has died? There's a differential diagnosis for the way this woman appears. Uh, It includes things like sleep, coma, but it also includes death. And so we want you to ponder what would you do if you came upon um, this person and were questioning whether or not uh, they had passed from the living to the dead. I'm going to end the poll here, and Adam's going to continue for the first part of our discussion, and then I'll return uh, at the end to sort of talk about the ethical issues but before we do, I want people to sort of have a sense for what the poll may have found. Adam, are are you seeing the results? I am
1: seeing the results. So for question
0: one, that's what do you typically include as part of your declaration of
1: cardiopulmonary death? The uh, two most common by far absence of pulse and heart sounds and absence of respiratory effort and breath sounds in 95%. Uh, followed by 80% saying dilated and fixed pupils.
0: Fantastic. But nobody was interested in the Middeldorf Needle, Adam. You'll have to convince them of its merit.
1: Nobody. No one had lack of flat movement upon placement of Middeldorf Needle. Uh, Everyone will know what that means very, very shortly. I am going to start by talking about the quest for a death exam. Uh, the death exam is something that I think I was taught as an intern, passed down from one of my residents, and it's one of these things that has been passed down, a, a very sacred kind of exam, right? In the hospital when I work, when I'm called in to perform a death exam, essentially to certify by the law that someone has passed from a living to death, it's, it's a very solemn maneuver, and I think a lot of us don't stop to think where it has come from. And one of the interesting things, as Tony and I did research for these series of papers, is uh, no one has really stopped much to think about where it's come from. So I'm going to walk us through the very interesting history of the death exam. And uh, I'm going to start with a story, and it takes place on Friday, June 25th, 1858. It's not a happy story. So Friday, June 25th, 1858, a prisoner named James Mickey was executed. He was hanged, uh, condemned to death for murder in Boston. This is actually the Boston City, well, this is not the Boston City Jail, but it was in the Boston City Jail, which is now a swanky hotel. And back in the 1850s, really before the 1880s, if you were condemned to death in the United States or in England, you were not only condemned to death, you were condemned to dissection. That is, your body would be dissected by physicians, often for public display after death. And poor James McGee, this was his fate. So he was hanged from the rotunda in the middle of the jail, and the doctors were gathered around them. And if anybody here, I actually, I know there are people here who are at MGH, so the name Bigelow may uh, may be very important to you. Dr. Bigelow was one of the doctors in attendance, and they used, uh, in Boston, we were obsessed with French medicine, and they used the latest in death exams to, to tell that James McGee was dead. So they auscultated his heart, they listened to his lungs, then they took him down after his heart stopped beating, after they, they couldn't hear it with their ears anymore, they, they cut him down and started to dissect his body. And when they dissected his body, they realized with horror that his heart was still beating. His heart was beating alive in his chest, and in fact, his heart continued to beat for some hours before it finally stopped. This was a huge scandal on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, and why was it a scandal? I would like to say it was a scandal because people were very concerned about the ethical treatment of condemned prisoners, but that was not the case. People were not worried about that at all. They were horrified that doctors, and this was, this was in Boston, um, you know, Europeans were pretty snotty about American medicine in this period, but Boston was seen as a, uh, as a European-ish place. And they were horrified that doctors could fail so miserably to diagnose accurately death. And this is a quote from The Lancet. Huh? They perform what appeared to be little less than a vivisection. And like the Boston Globe, the Boston Traveler, the New York Times, essentially every single major newspaper in the United States and in England covered this case. Why did that horrify people so much? Why was it such a scandal? And I think this is where we have to talk a little bit about the context of why it mattered so much in the middle of the 19th century to accurately diagnose death. There was a very clear and present danger or clear and present thought, and you can read this in a a lot of literature of the time, this fear of being buried alive. There was a legit, I mean, if you listen to like Edgar Allan Poe, the cask of Amontillado, right? There's a lot of these themes that we read today in high school, and they're themes that seem like very macabre to us. But in the 1850s, people were legitimately worried about something happening to them medically, them being mistaken for dead, and then being interred in the ground while still alive. And there's horrific stories from this time period. Well, why was that? So one of the one of the first things that happens in the 1850s is that there is this understanding of what is called apparent death or suspended animation. I mean, we even still talk about suspended animation today. These are medical conditions as varied as cataplexy, as stroke, as a post ictal state from seizures, even as severe sepsis that somebody surrounds. Right? We start to realize that there are many medical conditions that are treatable that can make someone appear to be dead and which they are not dead, and often from which they will recover. Well, how did society try to deal with these? These are, these are two of the most popular, uh, at, at least in the 21st century, when we like to talk about the middle of the 19th century and fear of being interred alive. The first is safety coffins. Uh, safety coffins were probably never that popular, uh, though we like to talk about them a lot. A safety coffin is essentially a sort of coffin where you are interred in the ground. And you can see here in this, uh, this diagram, there's an air tunnel, and you can pull a, uh, a line that will have a, be- a bell ring at the top. And in old graveyards, um, you can sometimes see rusted over uh, pipes from where there were safety coffins. Uh, Again, unclear how popular safety coffins were in general. I imagine they were quite expensive. However, something that really was popular and commonly used is a waiting mortuary. A waiting mortuary was actually required by law in the German states and in some American cities. And a waiting mortuary is a building often built on the edge of town, where after someone is declared dead, their body is placed there for up to 72 hours. And they're built like a panopticon. So there's usually a person in the middle who can look out to bodies arrayed in a circle. And essentially, you wait there, there's little bells. And if the person awakes from their apparent death, they'll pull the bell, and they'll be attended to and no longer dead and no longer interred. And uh, again, these were very popular in the German states. Uh, They were required by law in many, many parts cholera uh, put most of these to rest. Um, So the big cholera epidemics of the 1830s through the 1880s, when uh, essentially having a lot of uninterred bodies was was a public health risk and put these to sleep. Those are societal methods, but I want to talk about what we as physicians did to try to more accurately determine death. And the first time that this really comes up is the Manny Prize in 1837. This is the University of Rome. In 1837, Manny was, uh, Dr. Professor Manny was very old already, and he offered a 5,000-franc prize to anybody, anybody, who could determine a test that could accurately determine or accurately tell the difference between a living person and a dead person for all of these reasons. There were a lot of, there were a lot of winners. Uh, many of them are quite fanciful. I'll, I'll go over a couple. Uh, there is the Lebensproofer. Uh, the Lebensproofer is German for uh, proving life, which was a galvanic shock to the eyelid, so galvanism was really, really popular in the early 19th century, all throughout Europe and the United States. Uh, essentially, it's providing a small electric shock. Uh, Gal- galvanism is named after Galvani, who would take little frogs and make their legs jump as part of um, like a traveling show. And his nephew, Aldini, actually did that with human corpses. He would apply electricity to human corpses and watch them twitch. Well, this principle came to fruition in terms of determining death in a proofer where you would put it to the eyelid. If the eyelid did not twitch, the person was dead. Uh, Then there was the pince-memelon and laborde-tongue-puller, both of these by pretty prominent French physicians. Uh, They're terrible, right? The whole idea here is that you grab either the tongue or the nipple and you pull, and if the person does not react in any way, they are dead. Uh, these are just pictures of forceps. Uh, you, you can read the descriptions of these in the prize. There are there's actually no pictures of any of these things in the description. Just what they are, and effect, effectively, they're forceps. Uh, then what Tony was alluding to, Middeldorf's heart flag. This one's uh, this one's pretty terrible too. Effectively, you would take a flag, a a wire with a um. This is this is just a surveyor's flag that I found on the internet. Uh, from the description, it was a triangle, and you would insert it into the person's myocardium and then look to see if the flag waved. We know this one was used. So not only do we have it described, there is a legal case in 1896 when someone used Middeldorf's heart flag to determine death of a young cholera victim, and she was still alive, but it caused her death. So we know that Middeldorf's heart flag was not just this fanciful thing that was described, but was actually used in actual medical practice. Um, And I know it sounds very terrifying to everybody. I will say that one of the standards of this time period, like mid. Mid nineteenth century was when people died. Uh, sometimes they would ask a a needle to be placed in their heart anyway to ensure that they were dead. So great was the fear that you know of being buried alive. So sounds crazy, a little less crazy by the standards of the middle nineteenth century. But what won the five thousand francs, and that was the stethoscope. And I have here Bouchard's stethoscope. Uh, this obviously is Rene Linec's stethoscope, the inventor of the stethoscope in eighteen sixteen. Um, I will say, if anybody is in Boston and you want to go to the Warren Anatomical Collection, it's on the sixth floor of the Countway Library, we actually have some original Linek stethoscopes that were made by him yourself. You can see them. And if you sweet-talk the curator, you can actually hold them, uh, which I have done. But Bouchard had performed animal experiments where he showed that if there were absent heart sounds for greater than two minutes and later changed to five minutes, there was essentially no chance of the person or of the animal being alive. And this was shown in many experiments, and he ended up winning the prize. Bouchard devoted the remainder of his career to diagnosing death, right? This was his thing. And he eventually identified and developed the tripartite death exam. And I'm going to go over it, and this should sound pretty familiar. So uh, first, for the cardiovascular system... Uh, There were no hard sounds for five minutes. The Hippocratic face, uh, the Hippocratic face is the oldest physical exam sign that's ever defined. Everybody knows it. It's kind of that sunken, sallow look associated with death. Uh, Pallor, nail bed, opacification, and then the absence of an inflammatory halo. He would put a piece of metal in fire and attach it to the skin. There's no inflammatory halo consistent with death. For the lung exam, lack of movement of the nares and absent breath sounds when auscultating the lungs through a stethoscope. And then finally, for the neuro exam, a lack of intellectual faculties, release and dilation of the sphincters, and then glazing of the cornea. What we do today should sound pretty familiar uh, to, or pretty similar to Bouchard's death exam from, what, 150 years ago. I will say it was controversial at the time. Um, His death exam was popular in the German states, Germany, and in France, but it really took a long time to catch on in the United States and in England, up until the late, uh, at the end of the 19th and even beginning of the 20th century, you had medical textbooks basically saying the only accurate sign of death is putrefaction in rigor mortis, which had been kind of a standard of death for thousands of years. And um, one of the most famous studies actually came from Wil- William Osler himself. He never published it. I, we have it all, but he never published it in a journal. It was done near the end of his life. But uh, he went and examined 400 dying patients at Hopkins and I I find everything Osler writes is very uh, poetic, but he found that there was no easy way to tell when someone transitioned from living to dying. A death is like their birth, a sleep, and then an act of forgetting. So what happened for the death exam to kind of evolve in the 20th century? Well, a lot of nothing. Uh, New diagnostic technologies were invented in the beginning of the 20th century. I have two famous ones here. Uh, The first is the electrocardiogram. There's Very sad studies, actually, of dying children where they would attach EKG leads to look for electrical activity. Naturally, they thought that you could use the EKG to determine whether someone had died. Um, As we know now, I think from all of our experience, electrical activity in the heart will often continue long after clinical death has occurred. Uh, Same with fluoroscopy. So there's um, some studies from the 1910s where they would use a fluoroscope on dying patients to look at the heart beating. But same thing, the heart would continue to have motion long after clinical death had been described these new fancy technologies, many of which we have now, turned out not to be particularly helpful um, or even added on to Bouchard's death exam. Then technology kind of throws everybody a curveball. By the 1950s, the modern intensive care unit had developed, right? We had uh, positive pressure ventilation. We had uh, defibrillators. We had central access. Effectively, we had ways to negate many of the traditional forms of Bouchard's death exam. And that brings us into, I think, you know, I talked about how being buried alive was kind of the societal fear that drove the need for a death exam in the 19th and early 20th century. That brings us to the big fear and need that drives the death exam in the 20th into the 21st centuries. And the, the big thing to talk about first is organ transplantation. In, in 1954, the first organ transplant, or the first living or, uh, living kidney transplant was performed. Again, here in Boston, these are the Herrick brothers, identical twins. Uh, there were not many more organ transplants for the next decade or so because there was a limited supply of identical twins. But by the 1960s, we had improved dramatically with immunosuppressive
0: drugs. And with that, I'm going to turn everything over to Tony. Exactly. So as Adam has uh, has sort of told us, at the time that we're in the 1950s, we've learned how to transplant organs, but there is a dearth of uh, both identical twins and technologies to safely transplant certain types of organs. And that brings us to December 2nd, 1967. And this is the second controversial case that really uh, forms the basis for today's discussion. So this is Denise Darvall. And on this day, on this Saturday in December 1967, she was crossing the street with her mother and was hit by an automobile. And her mother was killed instantly, but Denise was just gravely injured. And on the following day, Sunday, December 3rd, uh, the decision was made to have Denise become the first organ transplant, particularly the first donor of a heart. The recipient of that heart was Luis Wachansky. And so two years before we had the the determination of brain death, we had the first successful heart transplantation from one person to another, and that was using circulatory death. And what's interesting about this is that there were a huge number of controversies, but one of the controversies surrounded this idea of how do we know that Denise Darval was dead? And this quote, I really think sums it up well. This is from uh, Lord Brock, who had been the uh, president of the England's Royal College of Surgeons. And he wrote that the anxiety most present to the lay mind concerns the possible removal of vital organs from persons who may not be in some absolute sense dead. And when I first read this quote, it reminded me of another really fantastic clinician, uh, and that's Miracle Max. So Miracle Max, uh, as you may recall from the fantastic movie, The Princess Bride, Uh, said that there's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. And in fact, he is exactly right. And uh, as you'll see, it is really quite difficult uh, to know when we have transitioned from mostly dead to all dead. Now, we've tried to define death, and this definition comes from the early 1980s from the President's Commission, and it was then used for the Uniform Determination of Death Act. And it has two parts. It has the Determination of Death based on brain death criteria, but for today's discussion we're talking about circulatory death. As you can see here, they state that an individual who has sustained irreversible cessation of circulatory and respiratory functions is dead. And thinking back to Adam's initial discussion, they write that a determination of death must be made in accordance with accepted medical standards. What we really want to concentrate on for this second discussion this uh, uh, this afternoon is this word irreversible, because it becomes quite contentious. And this is really where the ethical dilemmas arise. And so it should be, I think, fairly obvious that when you're presented with someone who is clearly alive, we can identify that. And when we're clearly presented with someone who's undergone putrefaction or has rigor mortis. That, is, that diagnosis is not hard to make. And I think we like to believe that the biology of death uh, suggests that there's this bright line where one transitions from being alive to being dead. But as Osler recognized over a century ago, that line is exceedingly hard to identify. In fact, probably isn't identifiable from a biologic perspective. And there's a lot more blur between being alive and transitioning to being dead, but we as clinicians, medically and legally, need to be able to identify a line where we can say that that transition has occurred, and that line is the line of irreversibility, right? It's that word that is used in the initial definition and the definition that we use in the uh, Determination of Death Act, and it's that word irreversible. Now, the problem is that there's a couple different ways that you can interpret that word. So one way I'll call the strict definition or interpretation of irreversibility. And it's the idea that the circulatory and respiratory functions are lost, irreversibly lost, when they cannot return even if CPR is performed. Okay? So you can imagine that this is going to probably be quite a long period of time where someone has to be in that state in order for them to be to meet the strict criteria of irreversibility, because we've all had patients um, who have had an asystolic or a PEA rest, and it's undoubtedly true that we don't have to attend to them within one or two minutes for CPR to be successful. The literature suggests that we can attend to that person upwards of 30 or more minutes and still achieve ROSC. So This is definition one, but there's another definition that is used, and that uses this idea of permanence. And so it states that the circulatory and respiratory functions have been permanently lost when they will not return spontaneously and no medical interventions will be used to restart them. So, this, this is the, the person who has, for example, a DNR order where they have an asystolic arrest and we're not going to perform CPR. We typically know that, um, and this is based on observational studies, that their heart is not going to spontaneously restart after just a few short minutes it may be as few as one or two minutes it's certainly less than five minutes right there's no documented case ever of someone having an asystolic arrest and having return of spontaneous circulation if they have not had cpr and that's going to be really important as you as you'll see in a few minutes so we have these two definitions right the strict irreversibility is it cannot return even if cpr is performed and we have this idea of permanence where it's not going to return spontaneously, and we're not going to do CPR. So let's put this in, into the setting of, a, of a, a few example patients. So let's imagine this, this patient who has an asystolic arrest, and they have a DNR order in place. A doctor would be right in saying after a few short minutes that the time of death is whatever it is. In, in this particular example, 11.45 a.m. And they're using the permanent definition here. Right? It hasn't certainly been 30 plus minutes, but because they're not going to do CPR, because the patient has a DNR, and because a few minutes has passed, they can comfortably say they've met the permanent criteria of circulatory death. But imagine instead you had two patients, each of whom have an asystolic arrest at exactly the same moment, one of whom is DNR, just like before, and one of whom is full code. Now you have the same doctor who says, time of death, 1145 for patient one and demands that CPR be performed for patient two. And CPR is performed and it's a good code team and they're able to achieve ROSC after about 30 minutes of CPR. And the resident or doctor can comfortably say, great job, another life saved. But notice that if we go back to that initial moment, they both at that moment met the permanent criteria of death. So as Adam and I write in one of the papers on this topic, the same person can be declared either dead or not dead depending purely on the decision whether or not to start CPR.
1: It's a little bit like what Schrodinger's cat, Schrodinger's death exam right there. A person is both dead or alive.
0: That's exactly right. And whether or not they're dead or alive is based purely on whether or not we start CPR. And that, you know, I think at first blush it's like, well, okay, of course, no problem. But they're experiencing the exact same thing. So how could it be that two people experiencing the exact same thing, one is dead and one is not dead? That seems biologically to be implausible, right? So this is controversy number one, right? The time point typically used to define irreversible loss of circulatory function doesn't represent true irreversibility. It instead represents this idea of a permanent loss of circulatory functions. So the question becomes, are the patients who meet this permanent criteria actually dead? And- I think many of you are saying, "Well, okay, but why does this matter for you know me as a, a clinician?" And at first, blush again, it probably doesn't matter a whole heck of a lot because if you've got a patient who is uh, DNR and you're not going to perform CPR soon after, within again thirty minutes or so, soon after the period of permanence, they will inevitably reach the period of irreversibility. So it isn't really problematic in most of our cases, most of the cases that we've seen, but it becomes exceptionally problematic in the case of a heart donor. It becomes exceptionally problematic in the case of someone like Denise Darvall. And why is that? Well, the question becomes, when is it morally permissible to harvest a patient's heart for transplantation and put it into someone else? Can we use time one, the permanent loss of circulatory functions, or must we wait to time two? And of course, the problem with time two is that if you wait till time two, you're gonna have a longer period of warm ischemia and a lower probability that the organ is gonna be successful when it's put into the new body. So there's a huge drive to use time one. And in fact, this came to a head in 2008 when the New England Journal published three cases of infants who received heart transplantations. And the time period used was as little as 75 seconds. So they clearly used the permanent definition of death and took a heart out of one infant, placed it into the body of another, and curiously that heart restarted, which some have suggested is another piece of evidence suggesting that in the initial person, irreversibility hadn't been met yet. I mean, 75 seconds is an exceedingly short period of time, and they chose that based on the ethics committee recommendation, Because the ethics committee said there's no reported cases in the literature of someone's heart spontaneously starting again after this period of time if they haven't gotten CPR. So really, controversy number one isn't just the idea that patients might be dead. I think the more pointed problem here is that uh, donors may not be dead, particularly heart donors, when we take their organ and place it into another person. But there's a second controversy, and I'll tell you, the second controversy some of you may have experienced, some of you may experience in the future. If you've ever been a part of a, a code where someone has received CPR and it's been unsuccessful, you've been at risk for experiencing the second controversy. And it relates to exactly that scenario. That the person who has had CPR, unfortunately, as demonstrated here, after, say, 30 minutes, the CPR is unsuccessful and the time of death is declared. Here it's 12.15. And this doctor is busy, they go attend to other patients, and the patient in this example is left on the monitoring and continues to be in asystole for another 10 minutes, but again, no CPR is being performed, the code has been called, and they have unassisted ROSC 10 minutes later. Right? And so you can imagine if you were to experience this, this would be frightening, and you might be aghast at the prospect of a patient who you've declared dead, who had no heartbeat, no breathing, fixed and dilated pupils. You come back 10 minutes later, and they have apparently come back to life. This is called autoresuscitation; It's the unassisted return of spontaneous circulation. And it goes by another name, um, and it's named after this parable from the Bible where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead days after he had passed away and so this is also known as the lazarus phenomenon and you might say okay fine like theoretically that may happen does it actually happen and the answer is yes 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 there are dozens of reports in the literature and the suspicion is that this is almost certainly under uh, reported because people are probably loath to write a case report where they say they've declared someone dead and they've actually come back to life But more than 50% of ICU doctors and ED doctors report either personal experience or knowledge of cases of auto resuscitation. And I'll give you one example here. This is a case from 2015 of a a 67 year old man who had a cardiac arrest. And that arrest was at uh, about 310 and it was a V-fib arrest for which CPR was started. And after nearly 50 minutes of CPR, um, they were not able to achieve ROSC so CPR was stopped. And five minutes later, he had unassisted ROSC. right? His heart restarted, his breathing restarted after five minutes of no CPR. And I love this case report uh, because it reminds us that the patients aren't destined to have bad outcomes in autoresuscitation. Three hours later, he was eating soup in his bed. <laughs> <laughs> there have been so many cases that they actually have systematic reviews, and here um, is one from 2018 where the longest period of time between stopping CPR and autoresuscitation was 33 minutes. And the longest period where the patient was on continuous ECG monitoring of asystole, so CPR stopped asystole for 10 minutes, and then their heart restarted. Now, again, you may say, okay, that's nice and all, but these patients are all going to be in vegetative states or all have brain death. But the This study showed that 70% had a return of consciousness, 40% recovered fully, and the recoveries were reported up to 18 months. So this is controversy number two. Patients who experience unsuccessful CPR can experience unassisted return of spontaneous circulation, also known as autoresuscitation. So the question, of course, is do these patients come back to life? So here are two controversies. Controversy one are patients who meet permanent criteria actually dead, particularly uh, salient if they're heart donors. And controversy two, do patients who experience auto resuscitation come back to life? We return to Denise Darvall and we try to apply these controversies. I think it should become clear that controversy two doesn't really apply to her case because she didn't have CPR, but undoubtedly, controversy does, one does apply. And it's worth asking whether or not Denise Darvall was dead um, when this first heart transplant was successfully performed because if you look at the two definitions that, that Adam and I are offering, the, the strict irreversibility and the permanent, it's clear that she met the permanent criteria, but she definitely uh, did not meet the strict irreversible criteria. So we're going to end with really some recommendations for what a 21st century death exam might look like based on the historical arc and based on some of these ethical controversies. So I'll turn it back to Adam.
1: Yeah, so what's, what's very interesting is I, I think that what Tony and I have been talking about should seem familiar to every single internist in the room today is that we essentially use Bouchard's death exam in the year 2021. And a few years ago, I think in 20, 2014, the WHO had a consensus, an international consensus committee with physicians from all over the globe. And the reason they did this, and this is what's rather crazy, is they looked at the uh, the standards to declare death in different legal territories, not only states, but also different nations. And they varied so dramatically. And Tony mentioned the Uniform Declaration of Death Act. That's the one that that guides most states in the United States. And literally, all it says is acceptable medical standards. So really no standardization of how we can tell that somebody is dead or alive. So the WHO's uh, global experts came up with this death exam. So for the cardiac exam, absent pulse, absent heart sounds, and the loss of blood pressure measured by a blood pressure cuff. For the respiratory exam, absent breath sounds, absent respiratory effort. Notice both of these are using the stethoscope. Uh, and then for the neurologic exam, uh, a coma, and then fixed and dilated pupils. And then for Tony to, to talk about auto-resuscitation.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the interesting thing is, again, patients can meet all of these criteria. And if they've had CPR, it is quite possible that they can all be reversed. And they can apparently come back to life. Um, and that's why if you look at the timings that are suggested by these criteria, the period of time that you should wait before declaring death is longer after unsuccessful CPR, exactly because of the phenomenon of auto resuscitation. And I would argue that this idea of two to 10 minutes, that 10 minutes, two minutes is undoubtedly way too short. There are dozens of cases of auto resuscitation in periods more than two minutes. And simply because we've identified the longest period of 10 minutes doesn't mean that that's actually biologically the, the, the longest period. I would say that in the next 5, 10 years, we'll probably have a case report of longer than 10 years of asystole and autoresuscitation. Um, so it really should be a longer period of time.
1: So Tony, how has like how has learning and reading about all this affected your death exam? How, how does Tony Brew declare death on him?
0: So in a patient who is DNR and who is not going to receive CPR, I think um, waiting two minutes is enough. And in fact, most of these patients when when the doctor receives an alert that the patient may have died because they don't have a a CPR and they have a DNR order in place. By the time they actually arrive at the room that that time period has passed. And so I feel for a pulse, uh, listen for heart, listen for respiratory sounds, look at the the eyes. And after a short period of time, again, probably as little as one minute because you're it's take taking some time to get to the room, but certainly two minutes, I feel comfortable in a patient who's received CPR. My recommendation to house staff that I work with is to first not immediately call the time of death. I think in my I, in my experience, it's always been um, anyone have any additional ideas? Okay, stop CPR, and then immediately say time of death is that moment. I think we need to wait at least ten minutes, probably more, uh, probably better to wait fifteen or twenty minutes, uh, and wait that time before notifying family, before moving the patient out of the room, because even though it's a rare phenomenon. It would be not optimal to tell a family a pa- their loved one has died, and then say five minutes later, "Well, it turns out that they they they've come back to life." And many of the case reports are exactly that, where the family members are either uh, in the room and the patient um, has unassisted assisted ROSC, uh or they're like, or, or the doctors have to report that to them. And uh, I think you might lose a little bit of trust if you have gotten the death exam wrong. Is that is is this similar to what you're you're doing now, Adam?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's exactly that's exactly what I do. I actually still wait the two minutes um, and essentially perform Bouchard's death exam. I, I do everything that the WHO does.
0: But you don't use Bouchard's stethoscope uh, or Linux stethoscope, I suspect. Uh, because my
1: uh, because my one-year-old has kicked me out of my normal office, I would have my 3D printed uh, Linux stethoscope, but I don't have it up here.
0: So I, I think um, with that, Adam and I really want to um, spend the last 10 minutes we have uh, taking whatever questions people have about either the history of the, the circulatory death exam or about some of the ethical issues that we raised. I'll advance the slide just for one moment so that if uh, people are interested in, in listening to more history, listen to uh, Adam's podcast. My podcast, we don't talk about medical ethics. We talk uh, about history, but usually couched in pathophysiology. It's um, fantastic. But I'm going to stop sharing and we'll see if anyone has any questions.